What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Ron Schneckenberg is a father, husband, pilot, and business leader residing in New York. His rocky experience as a salesperson at Trump University only lasted eight months. But Ron's resulting career in advocacy for fraud and professional abuse victims has continued over the last decade and a half. Stay tuned to find out what came next for Ron after ending his toxic working relationship with the fraudulent company of the former president of the United States of America. I'm a proud girl dad to two wonderful daughters, almost 13-year-old and going on six-year-old. They're amazing and they keep me going every day. And married to the same amazing person, Celeste, over the last 17 years. It's crazy that she has stuck it out with me this long. Credit is all to her. I like to spend a lot of time with my family. Outside of that, I love to be outdoors, playing golf, skiing. I've fairly recently learned how to fly airplanes, and so that's now a really, really big hobby for me. We took our first family vacation in the airplane for Thanksgiving. We went back to Colorado. I'm originally from Steamboat Springs. It was fun landing at my home airport to visit some family for Thanksgiving. That was kind of a childhood dream of mine, is piloting my own plane. I was very early in my career. It was my second corporate gig. I had previously spent a couple of years at the University of Phoenix helping them blend their online and ground programs. I found myself living on the East Coast. I actually hated my job at the time. So my wife sent me this job listing for Trump University that was selling an education program focused on real estate investing. In my spare time for the previous many years, I had been dabbling with real estate. And so I was kind of fascinated with real estate. This was also at a point when The Apprentice was huge. It was very, very popular 2005, 2006, sometime in season five or so. That was a pretty big show, something that I definitely watched every week. And so I was pretty excited for the opportunity to meet with them to try to sell a real estate education program. I'm very passionate about education and love real estate. So I was like, ooh, this could be pretty awesome. That's what initially lured me to Trump U. When I started there, I was just sales rep number three, probably employee number 10 or so in the headquarters. It was a very early company, but we had the Trump brand standing behind us, which was a very powerful thing at that point, especially in real estate. I had a really good time working there at that point in time. We were selling a program called the Real Estate Investor Training Program. It was a 12-month-long program. It had several different modules in it. It consisted of a marketing program. 
a market analytics program so you could do some market assessment and understand the individual localized market that you were dealing with. Then it had a business entrepreneurial program that would help you learn how to run a business. And so these three different segments made this real estate investor training program. The instructors were very well respected. I went through the program. It was a great program. I learned a lot and I thought it was something that was adding a lot of value to people. Michael Sexton was the president of Trump U. He was the brains behind this portion of the business and brought this idea to Trump. That's what I had joined the organization selling is that real estate investor training program, this 12 month long program. You could take each of those courses individually. And I think they were a couple thousand dollars each. If you ended up bundling all of them together, I think it was around like $6,500. So it wasn't crazy expensive. Obviously, that's a significant amount of money, but it wasn't a $35,000 weekend, which it ended up pivoting into. We were selling it to anyone interested in learning how to invest in real estate. How they found out about that was a number of different ways. But again, this was a period of time when The Apprentice was big. And so our inbound lead flow was ridiculous. We had more leads than we could dial in a day, which is huge. If you've ever been in sales, the biggest problem is having warm leads. And we had more than we could handle. I was doing really well as an individual salesperson. I was making way more money than I'd ever made. I had a bit of management experience previously. And so I was able to get promoted into a management role because of my performance. It was pretty short-lived, unfortunately. It was probably five months or so of my employment there. I was super early in my career. I was very young. Looking back, I definitely should have handled it differently. I do think that my career was negatively impacted by the product that they were putting into market. The reason why I joined the company in the first place was very, very different than what I found myself in six months down the road. That was what was tricky is the actual business and the operations of what we were doing changed drastically. Within like a week's time, they were developing new programs all the time. They had created this one program that came with coaching and it came with this big package. I sold that the first day that we made it available. And so people were very hungry for whatever Trump University was really selling at this point in time. So there was a huge contrast going from $6,500 for a year-long program. And then it ended up pivoting into a weekend-long seminar for thirty-five grand. The business changed from these year-long programs to weekend seminars. I don't know exactly how the change happened, but it happened really fast. They would invite anyone to these seminars for three days of professional coaching. Then during that seminar, they would try to sell you on, let us teach you individually how to do this for you. The first one I was curious about, I was like, how is this working? I had previous real estate investing experience back in Arizona. So I was like, okay, well, I wonder if I could be qualified to be one of the coaches. I would prefer to do that. I went to the first seminar and was just more of an observer than selling anything. And it became very apparent that we were selling something that was very, very different than what I had been used to selling. They initially said, we're just going to take all the leads from these seminars and sell the people that don't buy the seminar, our real estate investor training program. I was like, okay, well, that's fair. And that also changed very quickly to where we weren't even able to offer the real estate investor training program anymore. We were only able to offer these seminars. I, of course, did a bunch of digging on who the coaches were and who these people were that we were partnering with. And it's folks that had very, very little experience in real estate for the most part. 
that was really, really disappointing because I was watching people spend thousands upon thousands of dollars for education that was not going to produce anything for them. After sitting down and digging into the backgrounds of a lot of the people that were showing up to these free seminars, they weren't folks that had a lot of disposable income to invest in real estate. I talked to one guy that was on disability. He was taking out equity on his apartment to pay for this. And there was no way that he was going to then be able to purchase an income producing property like they would always tout. These strategies and tactics just were not going to work well for this poor guy. I did my best to keep that from happening. The guy called me after I had left the organization, freaking out, being like, what do I do? How do I get this money back? And I'm like, look, I'm sorry. I'm not even working there anymore. I wish I could help you, but I can't. The even scarier part is some of these people probably were able to go get mortgages just because of the lending environment that was in existence at this time. This was 2006, 2007, when lending was ridiculous. It was completely out of control leading up to the crash of 2008. So even more negligence, in my opinion, putting people in a situation that was completely compromising for themselves. That was kind of the final straw, the situation where I was more or less reprimanded for not selling the program to this guy. This was the piece that really drove the spike into my decision on leaving the company. I ended up going into the COO and saying, look, these are folks that can't afford to get into this. Their response was, who are you to judge them? You are now the problem getting in their way of success. I felt very uncomfortable because I was the top salesperson at the time. I was getting promoted to manager. They took me to the top of the Trump building down on 40 Wall, where the public's not allowed to go saying, we just wanted to show you that you're going to have the view from the top. We wanted to show you what it looked like from the top. Looking back at that, then the next situation of them being like, who are you to make this call on this person? It was just so two-faced and comical how egregious they were in what they were asking the team to do. They flipped so quickly on, here's the view from the top. We're going to accomplish great things to, you're the bad employee. You're the problem here. I had just finished organizing all of the contacts from the previous seminars so that the team there at 40 Wall could reach out. I was the only one that had any of this information. I let them know that I was going to be giving my two weeks notice. They brought me a box literally 15 minutes later and were like, you're done. We're taking you out now. I had never been treated like that before. It was shocking. A newly married couple living in New York City, which is a very expensive place. We didn't have a nest egg saved. Neither of us come from families of money. It was really scary. Even giving the two weeks notice, I was freaking out being like, maybe I can find another job in the next two weeks so that we don't go through a period of not working. But I sat down with my wife and we talked about it. We were both in agreement that we'll figure out the monetary side of things as long as we focus on getting me out of that toxic environment. The value side is just so not worth the mental stress that not only I'm putting myself in, but also being forced to put other people in. I wasn't going to go try to convince someone that was in a compromising situation into buying something that I knew wasn't valuable. There's no way I was going to do that. 2006, an attorney ended up getting my contact information. They had reached out to me personally and said, Hi, we understand that you were a former sales manager for Trump University. I you know, would love to hear your story. So I just explained what we just talked about. Went through how the business operations and business strategy drastically shifted from this real estate investor training program into these seminars. And then the tactics that were being used to try to push people into that. So I was kind of twiddling my thumbs thinking, what next? 
I ended up starting my own real estate company in New York City and running that with a business partner for the following five years. We sold that. Business school was kind of the natural progression for me. This was now 2010. I ended up moving to Spain with my family. We had a small child. We went to Spain until 2012 when we moved back. It wasn't until 2012 when we were living in San Francisco that any of the legal proceedings happened. Early 2007, I might have had a conversation here and there with some attorneys. But it wasn't until 2012, 2013 that I didn't get deposed from any attorneys. There wasn't any type of legal process moving forward. The length of time that the legal system takes, this is now almost a lifetime away from when I actually had the experience with Trump University. That was for a federal criminal case. The case was being brought from a judge down in San Diego. Again, years went by after I went through that deposition. That was also a funny situation, but also something where Trump's attorneys were animals. It was unbelievable how aggressive they were, which is probably always the case with attorneys with depositions. But it was incredible how they would try to manipulate what you were saying and try to get you to say other things. We're pulling in your moral compass into question since you're the one that's taken the stand against the moral compass of the business. That was kind of their big focus. Fast forward to 2000, I want to say 15, whenever he said that he was going to run for president, I knew that the case was still pending. I hadn't gone to trial. There hadn't been anything else. I had given that deposition and that was it. I hadn't really heard anything else about it. Then sure enough, it started surfacing of this pending lawsuit from Trump University. Then it started to bubble up. This is now 2015, going into 2016, where now the lawsuit is starting to come to a head. There's finally starting to get some steam behind the lawsuit. It looks like it's finally going to go to trial spring of 2016. I think the judge was also playing politics. I think he was unbelievably reckless in releasing just the raw testimonies of everyone. I didn't know that that was going to be displayed for the public to read, but that's neither here nor there. I don't regret anything that I had said. My testimony in particular was fairly damning to Trump. And this is when his ratings in the race were continuing to increase. Hillary's were continuing to decrease. Then the judge releases these testimonies. My name was in all of the deposition. All of the people that I was commenting on throughout the deposition were all included in there. I mean, I try to be a kind person and establish good relationships with people. But at the end of the day, if somebody is doing something that I don't agree with, I'm going to bring that up. And there was a situation where I was friends with a guy that was one of the coaches. He had very limited real estate experience. There was nothing against him, but I used him as one of the examples of these coaches had no business taking money from people and then advising them on whether or not a piece of property was a smart real estate investment. But his name was in there and that makes me feel bad. I didn't want to air some of his dirty laundry. This wasn't an attack on him personally, but that's just an example. Like I think the judge was horribly reckless in not omitting specific people's names. It was so funny. Like I remember it. me and some buddies were headed to the Golden State Warriors playoff game. There was a notice on one of the TVs going down into the BART train that the judge was going to release the testimonies of Trump University. And we had randomly just previously been talking about that as a group of friends. So I thought my friend was just joking around with it. I thought he was just bringing it back up from our previous conversation. 
So I'd completely dismissed him telling me that the judge decided to release the testimonies. It wasn't until I woke up in a hotel room in Chicago two days later, traveling for business, and I looked at my phone and I had like hundreds of notifications on all of my platforms. I had text messages from dozens and dozens of people that I didn't know, and I had no idea what was going on. It was crazy. My brother called me from, I forget what country he was in, but he was like, you are on the news right now. A buddy of mine in Barcelona took a picture of their news and was like, what are you doing on the news in Barcelona? My boss calls me. She's like, what have you been doing? Why did I get a text message of your name on the front page of the New York Times? The president of the company that I worked at wanted to talk to me. And luckily I was in Chicago. That's where our headquarters were. I had to go in and talk to him, but that's how all of this started playing out. I had no idea what was going on. Then I kind of scrambled to figure out what was happening. And sure enough, I remembered my buddy tell me that the testimonies were going to get released. So I was like, well, I guess that's what happened. I didn't really think much of it until I went and actually met with the president of our company. And he was like, do you need anything? Are you okay? Is your family okay? And that was the first time that I actually started thinking this actually could be pretty bad. There were a bunch of articles. Every news publication that you can imagine was interested in talking to me after reading that. I was getting reached out by every form of media trying to get my side of the story. I felt really gross about profiting off of this. People were asking about book deals and doing all the broadcast shows. People were outside of my house in San Francisco trying to talk to me about this while I was traveling. That was stress that my family had to deal with. That next month, was out of control. I had to hide. I didn't go on social media. I A, wouldn't want to keep up with it. And B, it was tough to read. I will fully admit that I did read some of the things that were getting posted the first day. And it was tough to read people making crazy comments that had no idea who I was. Someone from Trump's social campaign started blasting out false information about me his head of social media posted something on Twitter. And I curled under a rock after that because I was like, it doesn't matter what this guy says. It's completely fabricated. It's now being retweeted by thousands upon thousands of people. And that's where I was like, you know what? I am not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk to anyone. I am not going to respond to anyone. I am going to hide under a rock and pretend like this is not happening. But it was tough. I did hire an attorney to try to get some type of legal advice on what I should be doing. He was like, you can take this a number of different ways. If you want to make a career out of this, you probably could get a book deal. Otherwise, you're in a little bit of a weird situation because in the polls, once this all came out, that was the first time Trump's ratings went down and Hillary's went up. Wolf Blitzer makes this comment on CNN on how my testimony at the time was the most damning thing against the Trump campaign. So my attorney's like, you're either facing a Donald Trump that just lost an election and Wolf Blitzer is saying how you were a part of the cause for that. Or on the flip side, you're facing the president of the United States who's Donald Trump. And that's also bad. I mean, the guy is the blooper highlight reel every single week. Every news cycle is going to be another major catastrophe. I guess that was the only thing that I was happy about is I knew it was just a matter of hours or days that he was going to do something else that was completely ridiculous that would take me out of the limelight, which actually ended up being the case. I think Trump continues to play the media to this day. I think the media is who elected Donald Trump. I was shocked that he won along with everyone else. 
he's the shock jock that takes headlines. That's his thing is he's the headline grabber. And that's kind of our society as headline readers. Thanksgiving time, 2016, Trump had just one president and then he settled. It was, I think, the Monday after Thanksgiving, if I remember correctly, somewhere in that timeline, he settled, I think, two days before the trial was supposed to start. I don't know the details of what ended up happening with the settlement. I wasn't on the beneficiary side of that. That was all of the people that were defrauded from the university. And so I wasn't really involved or impacted at all on that side. My role in this whole thing was to help show that what these people were paying and what they were receiving was not close to an alignment. They settled, I believe, for $25 million for all of the plaintiffs. Eventually, you did participate in Dirty Money, specifically the episode entitled Confidence Man. Can you describe what that was like for you? Why did you finally concede to doing that? This conversation is only the second conversation I've had on it, and it's only the second conversation where someone didn't offer me money, Dirty Money being the first. That was the first time I was ever approached from someone that wasn't looking to pay me, Again, I didn't feel like it was a moral thing for me to benefit off of the backs of people that were defrauded. I knew that there was gonna be some type of tilt to that, but I do think that they did a very good job of being fair on assessing how Donald Trump operates. I did it specifically because I didn't feel like I ever had an opportunity to express my voice or get my perspective out there. The testimony is something that anyone could go and read on the internet. It's out there for anyone to read. But the problem is, is no one will. The only thing that they're gonna pay attention to is headlines that they've read. So I knew that people were thinking the wrong things about me and how I operated as a result of negative stuff that Trump's people put out there. This was my opportunity to share more of my perspective and my side of the story. And I felt like the producers of Dirty Money were going to do that in a way that was more non-biased and less politically tilted, which again, I think they did a pretty good job with that. It was cathartic for me to see that there was some restitution for the victims. I felt like that was a portion of win. Some people got some money back. That made me feel good. And then the documentary was my ability to control the narrative on my own terms rather than let Trump's people do it for me. There is something cathartic about getting it out because I haven't really talked much about it in the past. I know it's a gradient and everything is a spectrum, but I think you're on that spectrum of professional abuse. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that is what led me to reaching out again. I am seeing people that are getting laid off for reasons that are completely outside of their control, whether it be mismanagement by executives or a poor strategy execution, you know, whatever that case may be, the people that are getting laid off are the ones that need their jobs the most and the ones that probably have the least amount of impact to the overall health of an organization. So that was another reason why I reached out. I think this is a bigger question that's an important one for people, whether they be job searching or they find themselves in a currently compromising situation. How do you identify it or how do you get out of these types of situations? First, identifying it is the key piece. How transparent is the organization? I've found that the more transparent the company is, the less drama and the less nuances you face with this type of situation. Highly transparent companies are a lot more open. When transparency becomes an issue, I have found that people start being held accountable for things that are completely outside of their control. 
the whole kind of corporate side is so much less about impact and more about just doing the thing that you're asked to do. So I would tell somebody to always be very weary of their situation if they're being held accountable for things that they have no control over. I kind of have four pillars of my management, trust, communication, support, and accountability. I think it's really important that people have your trust and know that they are operating in a place of trust. They trust that they can make mistakes and that's okay. Having that trust and maintaining that trust through healthy and consistent communication, I think are two really big pieces that I try to focus on as a leader. As long as there's trust and open communication to maintain that trust, I need to create an environment that is supportive and giving people the opportunity to succeed. I'm very inclusive in creating performance metrics and how people's compensation plans are pulled together. I've found that when taking over a team, that's one of the biggest complaints that they have is something's not fair. But having a supportive structure in place for the person to have career advancement and opportunities to learn for themselves, not just on the job situations, but also personal growth as well. Having an environment that's supportive and then everyone coming together and being accountable for what they are responsible for. Those four things I have found successful to create an environment that is healthy for hopefully everyone. I really wanted to join today to hopefully give someone some encouragement of changing their situation. I have been in very toxic corporate environments. I had one situation where my leader was just very, very high pressure. The vibe that she would create across the entire office when she was in town was unbelievable in a horrible way. You would smell her perfume in the vestibule area before you'd go into our corporate office. And on that day, everyone's like on high alert. That is so unhealthy. Hopefully, there's someone that's listening that is able to consider that and realize they don't have to be putting up with this abuse and they need to find a path out because there are greener pastures and there are ways out. It's not easy. I can be the first to say that making a change, especially in a professional setting and situation is so difficult. But we have to look out for our mental health at the end of the day. I appreciate and thank you for this conversation because I know it's not like you want to keep reopening this topic, but there's still something to be gained from sharing it. So thank you for being willing to. It's funny how it has ebbed and flowed over the years. I'm guessing it's going to increase again with him running again. It'll bubble up again at some point in time between now and the next election, I'm sure. But yeah, it's hopefully going to be something of the past. I don't really want to deal with it again. I can't believe it's still a conversation. The things that he has said in the past and the fact that he's still a part of our conversation is really sad, honestly. What's next for you professionally? You mentioned distancing yourself from the corporate world. I am a pilot and I do own my own plane. I fly for Angel Wings that provides free flights for people that are sick needing transportation to a medical facility, for example. So that's something that I'm very excited to get more involved with. It also keeps me flying, which is very fun. I enjoy doing that. Schnack and Pickle is going to be a pickleball social club. My business partner started a ping pong social club called Spin. So I approached him with this idea for pickleball and he loved it. We just finished our first investment round, and so we're excited to get going. Congrats and good luck on the new ventures. Where can people find you if they want to reach out? I'm available on LinkedIn. I would be happy to help anyone that is a listener that does want to chat through their situation and try to figure out a way out. As a part of my profession, I do act as a mentor to people that are early in their careers. 
I love doing that. And that's a part of giving back that I would love to do. So yeah, if there was ever a person that's hesitating, I'd be so happy to help. Thank you again for being willing to chat with me today. This has been a very good experience. So thank you. Trump University victims claimed the courses they purchased were supposed to offer them the secrets to Donald Trump's real estate success. But instead, they were simply sold false advertisement. On April 9, 2018, federal judge Gonzalo Curiel of the Southern District of California finalized a $25 million settlement for the victims of Trump University which returned about 80 to 90% of what plaintiffs had originally spent on the program. After Trump spent years denying the fraud and refusing to compensate his victims, he finally agreed to paying $21 million in restitution to his victims and $4 million to the New York Attorney General's office. The case was officially settled weeks after Trump took presidential office in a manner that allowed him to face no other criminal repercussions. Sadly, according to USA Today, some of the elderly plaintiffs died while waiting for their settlement checks. According to the same USA Today article, it is purported that at the time of his inauguration, Trump was involved in over 3,500 lawsuits. On November 15, 2022, Donald Trump announced he was running for President of the United States of America for a second time. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. When we filed those complaints with the Attorney General, he was sent letters. Come to find out now, the letters actually list our names and our addresses, which is also scary. Someone being accused of a crime can have that much access to your life. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.